Alright, so tonight we're looking at the chapter, uh, if it came in late, I didn't make study guides, I ran out of time, sorry. But we're looking at the chapter that was describing what is basically referred to as the golden age of Islam. There's a whole lot of hard to pronounce names in it. But what I understand the gist of the chapter to be. And those of you who have the book and who have read it, you, you chime right in. I told you, if you got the book, you have to help. <laughs> All right? But, but my, my really basic overview of the chapter was he was saying that traditionally Islam claims a lot of credit for a lot of cultural development and scientific development over its period of, of, of most rapid growth and its most glorious days, you know? And that I have to admit, I've, I've thought that growing up too. I, I, there were things that, that informed me as I was growing up that, that Arab culture had a lot to offer uh, to the world. And, and there are some more radical claims in there that Islam makes about how you know, we wouldn't have, you know, Europe wouldn't have come out of the Dark Ages if it wasn't for the Arab, well, I, Islamic culture. But the thing that I really drew from reading the chapter that I think is worth noting for me was something I've been talking about since we started with this book. Is my personal perspective on this is, I was trying to look at the map that used to be there, but now it's over there. My personal perspective is this still comes down to an Arab movement more than a religious movement. That this is still more about Arab people up to this point. The Golden Age is still an Arab thing more than it's Islamic, and if the Islamic part plays in, it's in that it was used masterfully by some people to organize and motivate the Arab peoples into a golden age. And if you look at where they were, think about the biblical description of their origins, the kind of people the Bible said they would be, right? We remember that from last fall. Then you look at what they were like before Muhammad and before the... the uh, his his successors really took his message and the Quran and everything and, and engineered it all to work into a plan of, of getting people to, to play together who didn't used to play together. So you had all these independent nomadic people who were used to bickering and fighting amongst themselves and they were comfortable with that and somehow this religion becomes a way to get them united around a common vision and a common cause which gives them motivation to assume communities that didn't always conquer anybody they just sort of moved in and took over the neighborhood that kind of thing you know and and so this still becomes more of a culturally arab thing in my mind than a religious thing um if he's saying that islam takes credit for the cultural development then i would take issue with that because I mean, I take issue with Islam because I'd say, well, how can that be, you know? But if it's more of a Islam being part of a Arab kind of great awakening that occurred because of Islam, then yeah, the evidence is all over the place. And he argues later in the book that that a lot of the things that that Islam takes credit for were things that already existed in the communities that they inherited. And that the that some of the Arab people, and the reason I make this distinction is because because he makes the distinction, is it isn't necessarily because of Islam 
that certain Arab peoples who evolved into, you know, moved into the community and then set down roots and created generations of offspring, those people didn't necessarily do it in the name of Islam, but they went to a Christian community and it became Islamic because of the, the you know, expectation that they would convert. But at the same time, these are people of different cultures in these communities that they've overtaken who have already developed some of this stuff, certain, certain uh, technical knowledge and certain uh, artistic skills. So I guess what I'm saying is, is that it would be a little bit like trying to say, you know, that white Anglo-Saxons made America great. It'd be a little bit like that. Well, that seems pretty unlikely. Since from the day one, this country has been made up of people who came from all over the world, all peoples of all places. And, and if it were a uniquely Islamic thing, like see, because the other thing I took from the book is, if you remember the previous chapter, they were talking about how one of the things that it is harmful to, to Arab peoples, especially, who embrace the strictest interpretation of Islam, is they don't, they're not allowed to question things. They're not allowed to, to apply critical thinking to scripture. You know, we're encouraged to. But, but they're not allowed to. And if you start questioning them or asking them to interpret what they believe and give you a rational explanation for why they do some of the things they do, they feel challenged and threatened by that. So they just shut it off because, because it's better to believe without understanding than to understand in order to believe. You know, like, like it, and, and, so the problem is, is that keeps them locked into, it, it's, it's sort of like, and I mean this really loosely, it's sort of like the Amish. They decide that the best way to live out their religion is to maintain a lifestyle that was, that is now 300 years in the past. You know, they're still living the way their predecessors did two, 300 years ago. And they feel like that's the best way to maintain the, the integrity of the religion. And so they practice the religion pretty much the same way that their ancestors did because they practice the lifestyle of their ancestors. And so that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how, you know, it's not unreasonable that some liberally minded people think that Christianity evolves too. It's not unreasonable because, because we're not living in a vacuum. And, and what you look at when you see the Amish or particularly the Arab peoples as you see them uh, the Islamic peoples, you see them living in a vacuum. They're trying to stay in one place and not change. Because if they start changing things, then a lot of really difficult challenges, like the one our denomination is facing, come up. And who's to say that the people who question the status quo don't have a point? And so that he talks about this quite a bit in this chapter. He talks about how, you know, people periodically ask the hard questions and and, you know, it's almost like they, they're told, you know, leave the religion alone. If you're really that intellectually stimulated, why don't you apply your great intellect to something else like math? You know, and, and well, as a matter of fact, you know, the, the little Italian guy down the road's really into math. And I'll, I'll just go sit and talk with him because that way I won't get in trouble for using my brain. I mean, I, I'm exaggerating to make a point. You know, and, and that's the point. Is this, is it, the, I'm not saying one's better than the other, but that's how I interpreted this chapter. So we can pass all the hard names and all the history and everything. What I read was is that there's, there's basically this golden age when Islam 
is is the ruling sort of theocracy, you know, the, the religious government of the people, but it's really more of a of a, a, a an awakening of Arab peoples. It's it's Arab people moving out of a sort of tribal sort of savage lifestyle into a more sophisticated society, you know, and and so I look at Islam as the means to that end, but I don't think Islam gets to take credit for, you know, causing things like that. And I think the reason that it's important to make that distinction is, is that you look at our society, for example, societies that are based in Judeo-Christian values, and you see all sorts of good things happening precisely because of the religion. Do you see that? I mean, you know, you don't... Uh, what, what do Christians do when they move into a new territory? They build hospitals. They build orphanages. You know, they, they, they understand that, that Jesus, our Lord, has this compassion for the widow and the orphan. But that's also part of Jewish tradition. So there's just a natural tendency. But if you notice, Islam doesn't really make good things happen in the same way. They're not motivated in the same way. And that's one of the things that really comes out in the book, is that they're not driven to, uh, to be the forces behind. You know, like, like for example, you can, uh, you can tie Christian... Uh, there's a word for it, and I just can't remember what it is. Considering how much I paid to learn that word, it seems like I should be able to call it to mind. There's a word for it. It's sort of like a it's sort of like a Christian ethic, but because of this this Christian Judeo Christian ethic, somebody like Jonas Salk, a Jew, develops a cure for polio, and he does it because he wants to cure polio. But you know what else he did? He spawned a whole new pharmaceutical industry that gave millions of people work and created a worldwide distribution system, you know, you know what I'm saying? So, so it's like when, when you think about it, Christians and Jews do things that better society and that better society in ways that they didn't even conceive of when they did it. And our book tells us to do that. Our, our, our Lord tells us to do that. But if you look at Islam, it doesn't really, it, it, it's all about making sure you're right with Allah. It's all about me and Allah. And if you stand between me and Allah, then you've got to get out of the way. And now, I'm done. Anybody else interpret it that way? I know I'm, I'm the talker and everything, but, but you can disagree. I mean, is that how you read it? What do you think, Russ? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody oh, said yeah. you were the valedictorian. <laughs> <laughs> God, I hate this. <laughs> <laughs> now the pressure's on. Uh, I guess I, I, I take a look at this and I just, I don't know what fake news is and what real news is. Yeah. Okay? I mean, this is never, this has always been, right? You know, I mean, societies have printed newspapers, but what they put in them wasn't necessarily sure. true, right? Okay, like who invented the internet? Well, there's a guy who says he did, okay. And, yeah. and and these guys walked into communities and 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 folks that were not herding sheep, you know. Yeah. You know, they had cities and villages and 
they had science and they had all these things. And apparently they weren't that intent on, on converting everybody because they had extortion. You know, they called it, I don't know how you pronounce it, it's uh, Zach, Zach something or another. And I said, wait a minute, you know, if you really believe this, why would you make someone pay to stay the way they are, okay? And it, and it all goes back to you move in to collect taxes. Yeah. To me, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and since someone had some sort of a astrology invention, they just consumed it and said, we did it. Okay? Because yeah. they're the ones running the newspapers at that point, right? You know? You ever hear the story about the Phillips screwdriver? Oh, God. Did it break your heart? <laughs> Do you know who invented the Phillips screwdriver? Mr. Phillips. Phillips? No. Thank you very much. The gist of the story is, is nobody remembers the name of the guy who invented it. He tried like crazy to get tool makers to get, give consideration to his plan. And none of them would take him seriously. And one day he was, you know, crying over his beer and some dude was sitting next to him at the bar and said, so, so what have you been trying to sell? And, and you know, like a lot of inventors, he's, he's really smart. And he's really brilliant about the engineering and the science and everything, but he doesn't know how to present anything. He, did, he doesn't know how to pitch his product to the people to make mm -hmm. them see the benefit. He, he's talking about the science and the engineering, and they want to hear how are we going to get rich selling your product, and, and he doesn't know how to do that. So this guy, Phillips, sitting next to him says, you know, I'll, I'll buy your plan. It, you know, if, if you give me all those drawings and, and uh, I'll give you $500 and, and we'll sign a document that says it's mine now, not yours. Mr. Phillips was a brilliant salesman. <laughs> and we've been calling him Phillips Screwdrivers yeah. ever since. Yeah. And you can research that. That is a, a true story. I'm not making it up. But, but it's a perfect example of what you're talking about. You know, who, who gets the credit for a really brilliant invention? A lot of times, you know, we only learned in the last few years that a black woman did the really hard math that got men on the moon. Mm -hmm. And that's because nobody wanted to give her credit for anything back in those days. I, and it's a darn shame. I would bet there's a lot of people at this table who have developed a lot of things that some marketer took and, and made fame out of it. You know, if you just look at the people at this table. Yep, yep. And, you know, and I said, I had that idea. Nobody listened to me. Right? And that's kind of why I look at it like this isn't about the religion as much as it is about cultural movement, right. which is fluid. It's always movement. You know, this, the, I was right before the class started, I was talking about how I came here and tried to do a little business as a salesman when I was in my 20s, and that was 35 years ago. And I came in here and I got told, you know, there, there's no way you're going to sell anything in this town to anybody in this town unless you're the only place they can get it. So I would sell body parts for Peterbilt trucks because I was the only place that you could buy those. Otherwise, I didn't sell a thing in this town. But in Huntingburg, I did a wonderful business. And that town's not the same anymore. This town's not the same anymore. It's a whole different animal. So it just goes to show you, you know, we're living in an example of this. But what else you got? China does the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> they do. I mean, my corporation were, have been in there for 50 years. Yeah. And what they say is true. You know, we've experienced it. This is firsthand. You know, when patent laws and international laws are not enforced, 
That, that happens, okay? But few politicians are willing to step up and sour that milk, yep. you know? Yep. Because of the near-term downfall that, that, that we've been witnessing, yep. you know? And so, that's all I got. What else did anybody <laughs> see? Did anybody else see something in that chapter that I didn't summarize very well? I, th I think you hit on it that it wasn't the religion that brought the awakening. It was a group of people who used the religion to unite a region, and then once united and they stop fighting, then they're going to develop. So yep. That, but in, in, I think he argued in a way it held things back in other ways because mm -hmm. people who were thinking and developing, but it got in the way of the religion, then they were silenced. Would it be safe to say that to, to an extent that they were saying the love of money is the root of all evil, that maybe everything boiled down, that's where it's at? Yeah, yeah. power. Yeah. And power is a tool to, to get power as opposed to... Yeah. Yes. Comparing what you have to what they have. Do you think that it's still that way with Islam even now? I mean, where you see, the, you know, now, now, first of all, let's all agree, because because if you, like, some of us have had the pleasure of, of going over there and, and meeting people, I've met a lot of, of Arab people and people who are Islamic. That's what they say they are, you know. I, I've known a lot of them, and you know what? I haven't met one yet that I felt like would, you know, cut my head off and, and declared jihad on me. I haven't met anybody like that yet. I, I had a conversation with a guy once a long time ago on my first trip to Israel when there was still a lot of fighting between Palestinians and Israelis. Uh, and, and I remember him just telling me, he was in the gift shop there at the olive tree. I think he's still the same guy. But he said, uh, he just said, you know, when, he said, I know that you and I don't have a gripe with each other, that you're just a visitor to my country. And, he said, I don't have a gripe with you, but if you want to understand why so many of my people hate America, it's really simple. When they see their dead child laying on the side of the road that, that, uh, and they see the, the casing from a, 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 some sort of ordinance laying there and it says made in USA on it or something, you know, they know it came from America. And they know that Americans sold the weapons to the Israelis who then killed their child who was throwing rocks at a at an Israeli military vehicle or something, they're going to hate America, you know, because because you're you're helping my enemy kill my children, and you know, I couldn't argue with him about it. All I could say is, well, I'm glad you understand that that's not my policy. My yeah, government policy. Like, that's kind of like here in the United States. Somebody says we need to take everybody's guns away because look how many people are getting killed. You think you're going to stop the the gangsters from getting their, their guns? Guns don't kill people. People kill people. Sure. So, with what you said over there, just because there was an American gun there, that didn't have anything to do with it. And the person and that had the guns, the person that. And I think reasonable people during reasonable times figure that out. But when when you are feeling oppressed by your enemy and you've just seen your children killed, uh, you know, because because in every country, teenage boys who are on the wrong side of whatever it is, are always going to be the victims of unjust enforcement. You know? You like how I put that? I, I mean, because I, I really had to think about that because I didn't want to say anything that sounded particularly one way or the other. 
Because it really, like when I was in Kazakhstan, which was the former Soviet Union, while it was under Soviet control, white European-looking Russian people were in charge of everything, and the Kazakh people, who were more Mongol in their features and darker skin and everything, um, were oppressed. But when the Soviet Union was driven out of Kazakhstan, well, they put in a new government, and it's all Kazakh people. And all of a sudden, the roles have reversed overnight. Now, the most endangered person in Kazakhstan, at the time I was there, which is like 14 years ago now, but at the time I was there, the most at-risk person in Kazakhstan was a teenage Russian-descended white European-looking kid, boy, you know. They, they, the Kazakh police, if they needed to solve a problem in order to, you know, if their boss was on them because they hadn't solved a certain crime, they'd grab a kid that they had an issue with anyway and they'd just force them to confess and make them pay, the, you know, and guess what? It was, it was kids that looked just like the ones over here at Jasper High School. So what does it have to do with color? Nothing. It's about how we view each other. And so in our country, young black males are at great risk because so many quick judgments are made about them based on assumptions. And yet in another country, it's a totally different thing. It's, it's completely different. So it's really about how we look at each other. And, and the fascinating thing about this, this Arab thing is the one thing that all of them had in common was they were Arabs. One of the reasons the golden age was so golden, in my opinion, and some of you people who read the chapter, you, you mm -hmm. question me on this. One of the things that made the golden age so golden, I think, is because even, even the Christians were Arab, even the Jews were Arab. I mean, they, they had people in, you know, because the, the, the Jews had a diaspora that they never got over. You know, they call it the lost tribes. They're not lost. The, 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 the whole, see, that's a whole different Bible study, and I don't want to do this to you. But, you know, during, during the, the uh, Old Testament time when, when the temple was destroyed and the people had been dispersed, first the northern kingdom went and those were the, the ten lost tribes, they call them, and the tribes that just got assimilated into the invading culture. The, the uh, two remaining, Israel and Judah, thought they were better because they managed to keep their identity a little bit longer and so they they're the ones who coined the phrase lost tribes but the truth is whenever a foreign entity comes into your country and takes over they take your smart people back home and teach them how to be the new ideal whatever that is and they enslave the people that they leave behind until there's just this melding of cultures to where you don't really know who we call it the great melting pot in this country and celebrate it at least we used to and, and so this melting pot process never stops. And I think what made the golden age so golden was that all the people had the thing, the one thing they had in common was they were all native to the region. And so Jewish intellectuals, Christian intellectuals, uh, uh, Arab peoples who became uh, educated or, or sophisticated in some way because of the previous Greek or Roman or Byzantine rulers, you know, because they brought people into their houses and made them servants, and they brought people in and educated. Look what they did with Daniel and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? You know, they, they, they brought them in and educated them and everything, but then when, they, when that empire falls and they, they return back to their homeland, they leave behind people who have been trained in a culture that's Greek or Roman or whatever. So all these Arab people 
left behind after the Byzantines pull out are united under Islam and more than that they're united under their common nativity you know they're all Arab people I think that's what happened that made the golden age golden that's, that's my opinion anyway and it's kind of remarkable because you know if I thought that if I could think of something that would fix America I might just say that maybe if we could all just be Americans for a change you know um, in our culture the only time we really have a, a, a kind of unified people is when we're facing down a bigger enemy than each other you know so when there's a world war we're all Americans for a while you know pretty high price to pay for unity but if you think about it that's what made their golden age golden in my opinion and I don't know does anybody else agree with that or disagree with that or And I don't see any point in studying it if we can't at least figure out how to apply it in our lives now. So what do you want to know about your Islamic neighbor? Well, what you need to know is they've been taught a lot of things about their history that they believe are true. And how bad do you need to fix that for them? What is it you really wish you could accomplish with your moderate, middle-of-the-road Islamic neighbor or doctor or somebody that you know what is it you really want to accomplish and why? We feel compelled to share Christ with people. Why would we want to share that with our uh, Muslim neighbor if we feel like they're already, you know, stuck in their religion? And, you know, what's motivating you to do that? that? That's a question I don't have an answer for. I'm just saying, you know, you have to decide in your heart. Um, there was a story I was going to bring up last week and I, and I didn't get to it, but i got to tell you this because I'll never forget it as long as I live. Do you remember the tsunami that hit back in, uh, what was it, 06? In January of 06? Uh, I remember, it was so funny because I, I was the associate <coughs> pastor and every year after Christmas the senior pastor would take off for like five weeks and go to Florida and I would be left in charge of the church. And uh, it's still standing so it must have been alright. <laughs> but um, I, every morning I'd get up and it was a church about like this one. And I'd get up on Sunday morning and I always, and, and this is before we had smartphones, so I would get up and I'd go sit down at my computer and I'd read headlines. And I did it on Sunday morning because I just thought, you know, if something happens, I mean, and honestly, the, the whole time I was at the church, we, we, it was bookends. We had 9-11 happened after I'd been there about a year. <laughs> and then at the end of my time there in 96, or 06 rather, we had this tsunami thing and, and so I just got in the habit after 9-11 I read the news every Sunday morning before I go to church because I don't want to stand there and look like a chump you know because because I'm the only one that doesn't know and I'm saying so anybody want to pray about anything you know so I get up there and I say friends I just read that overnight and in this morning in these wee hours in the morning there's been a unbelievable tragedy that, that is the scope of this thing is outrageous this, this thing has affected hundreds of thousands of miles of coastline and there are going to be tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of deaths. Well, that's exactly what happened. Now, I get cold chills thinking about making that announcement in that congregation. Most of them hadn't heard it. They didn't read the news on their computer like I did. And then during the coming weeks, I followed all this and I found out that, that there was this one place uh, in Indonesia that was like 100% Muslim but, but it was like on a little uh, isthmus or something you know it was one of these narrow places where you have water on either side 
and it had just been wiped out. This town of like 100,000 people had just been wiped out. And so anybody who didn't escape, they came back and they're trying to rebuild. And then literally they have a before satellite view and an after satellite view. And it looks like somebody just went. And Christians from the Baptist church, the Catholic church, and UMCOR, the United Methodist, when they were all there helping them rebuild. And there were stories coming out in all different news agencies related to these religious entities about how the Muslims were just dumbfounded. They could not understand what these Christians were doing. Why? They kept saying, why are you here? Why are you helping us? Why are you helping us bury our dead? Why are you helping us recover our lives? You know, why are you doing all this? Because we wouldn't do this. I mean, they, this was in the stories. I'd have to go on, dig into archives and find it for you, but I was blown away by this. I remember just sitting there, just jaw-dropping, reading these articles online you know, on my old big tube-type uh, screen, right, you know. The, the one that, if I wanted a big screen, was like this long. I, I'm sitting there looking at this thing, and I'm reading these stories, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh. They don't, according to their religion, feel compelled to help a neighbor. Now, to help a family member, and, and by culture, they have a lot of extensive family, so, you know, a white American does something to my second cousin thrice removed, you know, well that's family and that's a different story. But, but I mean the idea that total strangers from a foreign land would leave their homes, leave their safety and security, come over there to a disaster area, feed them, give them fresh water, clothing, help them bury their dead, help them recover their lives. They, they were floored by this. And so my question is, if that's what it takes to knock your Muslim neighbor off his comfort, comfortable chair, then it's not you being able to accurately argue against his religion. It's not you being able to say, this is why Christianity is better than that. It's what you do that's going to make all the difference. So if you're trying to figure out what do you, what do, you do with this class that we decided to take in this book that I forced you to read, the answer is love your neighbor as yourself, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. That's the neighbor. That's the thing to do because the thing that'll probably make more difference with your unbelieving neighbor or your neighbor who believes in something that you don't even understand is to show them incredible, radical grace and mercy and love. And that's what missionaries have been doing for generations. They go to a foreign land. They live among the people and they fix things. They dig wells. They teach them how to grow their crops. They do medical services and they do all these things. And then one day, maybe 20 years later, some native person says, you know, I've been watching you do this for 20 years and I've never understood why you do this. Could you please explain to me what made you do this? And you go, all right, now we can start. And, and then all of a sudden, 100 years later, these missions, they're over there in Africa trying to fix what's wrong with the United Methodist Church here in America. So the missionaries that went over there to live with those people and do good works until they became interested in knowing why, they have left behind generations of solid Christians who are now coming over here trying to remind us why. Kind of amazing, isn't it? Africans are sending missionaries to the United States, and there's plenty of work for them. So what do we do in our local church? 
Because I'd sure hate to find out an African missionary is in town doing a better job of making Christians than we are out here at Shiloh. Think about it. What do you think about all that, friends? Amen. Well, thanks. Preachers don't preach, I guess. But it is an open discussion. I went to the nursing home today and this one gentleman came up to me and he was in tears. He said, I want to apologize to you. And I said, for what? He said, when you were here last month, I interrupted you and asked you a question when you were preaching. And I said, John, that's great. I don't mind. It didn't bother me at all. I was glad to have the interaction with you. I just fill the silence when I, you know, if nobody talks, I talk. Because I figure if you don't, if I don't, you just go sit there and look at me. <laughs> but it's great when you feel inspired to check, chime out. You know, it's a little different in church on Sunday. You know, you could do it, and I wouldn't shoot you down or anything. But it would probably be embarrassing for you or the people around you. You know, I can't believe they did that. It's not gonna bother me. Not really. It just won't be expecting it. That's what'll bother me. I'll be shocked because it doesn't usually happen. But it doesn't mean that I would. Connie, I think you just challenged me. <laughs> I'll be here Sunday. All right, friends. Uh, immediately following this class is a is an opportunity I announced where some men uh, are going to meet with me here. Any men are welcome to talk about whether we can create something uh, a little more sophisticated in the way of a men's ministry and to see if we can see if we can inspire something better organized and more and I, I'm not comparing it to anything we're already doing but I'm just saying men have an opportunity here to discuss how they could be half as good as the women in our church <laughs> well let's face it women take care of everything in church they do men just own it we fix what's broken if they tell us enough. <laughs> but in church, generally, you know, the men have to choose to step it up. George isn't here, so I guess I'm going to pray us out. Unless anybody feels inspired. Father, thank you again for this wonderful group of people. I, I pray you bless our time here. I, I don't know how they feel. They're not telling me, but I hope. The fact they keep coming back is an indication that you're giving them something of value through this. And so, Lord, keep us, keep us alert and mindful to be good neighbors, to be loving and kind and generous people. And uh, let us focus on, on those things that really make a difference. Lord, send each one home safely and uh, give them a great rest tonight and a, and a joyful conclusion of their week, I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody. I'm honored, believe me.